This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 4th of December 2018, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my fully recovered big data counterpart, Yon. Uh, sorry, systems overloading, crashing now, switching over to backup. <laughs> Hi, Dave. <laughs> Hey, your your um, RTO was very good there. Yeah, it was good, wasn't it? <laughs> Although the RPO was very bad, because what the hell am I doing here? Uh, um, I've no idea. <laughs> I don't know. We just we just restored you back from tape. Um, so I mean, so those tapes were built anything. in nineteen eighty. So I'm about ten. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and so I mean, who would have thought that you could make so many jokes around backup? But apparently, it's possible. Well, we're not making jokes about backup. It's about disaster recovery. Indeed, and and this, of course, means that we can put a humorous image for our um, our uh, episode picture on the uh, on the site. Surely, some um, sort of horrendous failure. Oh, okay, uh, something Fukushima like or. Uh... Uh, I was thinking like the uh, the complete train wreck or the the one in the uh, the slide share that we possibly are going to reference, which has a picture of a a military vehicle, a tank, kind of stuck in a, a well a giant yeah, yeah more than puddle a ditch. lake ditch, which is hilarious. Anyway, yes, disasters and how to recover from them in a big data sense. Because uh, this is a subject that comes up quite often when people get serious about uh, big data and advanced analytics. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at a certain point, it becomes more of a hobby project and at, uh, more than a hobby project, I mean, and it becomes something your business depends upon. At which point you have to make sure that it actually is resilient. Would you say that you think that um, big data disaster recovery is fundamentally different to the way that people do DR in, in a normal enterprise, or is it just the is it just the scale of it that sort of scares people? Um, I'd say yes to both because it's the scale that makes it different, and the fact that the scale is the big data scale and uh, data, as we've been talking about earlier, has gravity. It's mm-hmm. easy to switch on the compute somewhere else. It's hard to just automatically have your data copied across the pond. Very true, and that's something. Sorry, a ditch. <laughs> or ditch. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I do think it's a different way of looking at it. I think it's more, it's, it's broader than just data, data disaster recovery even. If you just look at how you deploy a big data or advanced analytics infrastructure in a company, uh, IT usually needs to change their way they think because doing things like dev test in a big data machine learning environment is a different way of looking at things because your development of machine learning it's actually production and not dev test. Mm, so yeah, yeah. the whole big data thing does require a little bit of uh, change in the, in, the, in the procedures, I'd say. We could, in fact, I think we should do a whole new episode when we talk about dev, test, prod, and Ooh. that whole life cycle. Making a note now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so today we're focusing on on DR or disaster recovery. So let's let's just make sure that we're, at least we're both, and our audience hopefully too, are all on the same page. What do we actually mean by disaster recovery? I mean, the, the clue is in those two words, re- um, recovering from some sort of disaster. But what, what do we typically mean by DR? Uh, I suppose you're asking me now. Uh... Indeed. I guess for me, as I, as I alluded before, when you have this stuff in production and something goes wrong and something will go wrong, you want to make Indeed. sure that the time uh, between things going down and things coming up is short enough not to cause economic disaster for your company. Yep, that makes sense to me. And if that means that you pay another company to do it for you at that point, that is also disaster recovery. If you decide to go yeah. bankrupt, that's disaster recovery too, but maybe not I the way you That's not much it. of a recovery, that's just disaster. <laughs> it depends how much money is in the pension fund. Okay. So, I mean, when, when we... So disaster recovery scenarios can range from um, anything from sort of catastrophic failure of... Um, data centers slash availability zones um, and even you know catastrophic failure of hardware could be 
catastrophic failure of connectivity, power, um, even sort of in some cases catastrophic failure due to um, you know de- mass deletion of uh, of information. In some cases, that that can also be a a scenario where you would want to enact your disaster recovery process. Yeah. If, That's actually uh, a tough one. That last one because it's hard to mm-hmm. detect. Because uh, disaster recovery is often is based on the automatic detection of something going wrong due to all kinds yeah. of monitoring hardware, but a uh, RM uh, minus R slash star. Uh, yeah. At certain point, things will start to fail, but uh, that's, an, that's, that's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. So we can, we can, we. Can, that's probably one that is better served on the uh, on the backup uh, episode that we're also going to do at some point in the future. Well, but, backup archiving uh, then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There we go. But yeah, so disaster recovery. We're we're typically talk about some talking about some ab- availability to get everything back up mm. and running after some sort of significant event. Yeah, um, usually mechanical failure, I'd say. Typically, yes. I'm trying to um, think of other ways. I mean, excluding the mass deletion you just mentioned, there would always be yeah, some I mean, it, kind of uh, mechanical failure, right? Well, I mean, ish. I mean, I've seen DR enacted due to total connectivity failure, for example, to data centers, which actually wasn't a mechanical failure. It was just a routing cock up that, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 fair enough. So that that's the other thing. But yeah, it, it's some sort of catastrophic case where uh, all of a sudden, essentially production services stop being available to the business and... um the, the steps required to restore that, uh, you know, that sort of those services, so the business can get back up and running as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah, but Dave, uh, I already have HDFS replication high availability in my services. Why do I need disaster recovery or backup? These are all different things. So, uh, should, should we run through the, the through the different things? So, high availability, first of all, is is about having multiple services. Um, available within a single environment so let's say you have mm-hmm. you know the the classic case is as you said hdfs replication which means that if a node goes down the data has been replicated elsewhere so your data is not lost jobs can still continue running life is happy um Unfortunately, that HDFS replication won't protect you if, for example, a plane crashes on your data center and um, and blows up, uh, exploding all of your servers. Uh, HDFS replication will will not prevent you from um, having some data loss at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, in the crux of it, the, the problem here is the speed of light because high availability solutions usually depend on low latency. Because you mm-hmm. want to have every, uh, those two high available servers close to each other so they can take over in a split second and you have absolutely no downtime. When yeah. you talk about disaster recovery, you're usually crossing a couple of country borders, maybe even uh, an ocean or two. And yeah. at that point, you can't have high availability across uh, continents because latency will cause issues. And, and there are organizations and products and services that, that claim the ability to do that. Um, for those yeah. people out there that are looking at or investigating those solutions, I would say um, ask for ask for production reference c- cases and ask to speak to those people that are quoted mm-hmm. um, in those sort of reference studies. Because, yeah, as 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 Jan says, it's very very difficult to get something like that fully operational and cover all of the breadth of things that happen. Um, on a day-to-day basis, in a in that sort of environment. Yep. So, if we if we say that um, that that covers the sort of the difference between high availability and sort of disaster recovery, you mentioned at some point um, projects go from being um, science projects, if you like, into something that the business relies on. Where would you suggest people start thinking about? Where where do people start thinking that this is important enough? Um, I should be thinking about my DR strategy for this now versus this is a nice to have, but we probably don't need to invest in DR. Uh, in practice, they usually start thinking about it when things have gone wrong and they didn't have DR. 
often, but I don't think that was a question. <laughs> uh, no, but you're quite right. That is often actually the the first time. It's kind of the problem is I think that stuff evolves from mm-hmm. science project to business relying on it. Sometimes without, without the business yeah, 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 yeah. realizing they're relying on it. Yeah, it's quite invisible to see the to see the, the the actual value that the big data environment gives you in a company is often very hard to enumerate or quantify. Because mm-hmm. you have it, it's like a core thing that starts filtering in everywhere, and at a certain point you don't even realize who is who's using the the data lake and the the storage and the analytics in there. So I think it's a very hard question to answer there. Uh, probably uh, I would say it's uh, I would do it in reverse because disaster recovery. We'll talk about that in in, uh, in a bit later. I think uh, costs money. I mean, this is not free, and yeah. it's often quite yeah. expensive. So if you start on day one when you have this brand new little gizmo in production, it's, it's cute, it's nice, I want to have disaster recovery, there's going to be a bill attached to that. If your use case, if your thing you're doing isn't generating revenue at least enough to cover that cost, mm. it doesn't make sense. And at that yeah, point, yeah. it should also not be so critical to your business that if you have a downtime, if you have outage, if you lose some data at that point, that that would cripple your company. Yeah. So yeah. uh, it's a cost thing because ideally you would always have it. I mean, if it was free, you should always have it. No, no questions <laughs> about it. Just always do it. It's never yeah. bad to have DR. In reality, though, yeah, we still have to pay uh, people for doing stuff and uh, pay for hardware. Pay for hardware, pay for power, pay for networking, uh, pay for the yeah. overhead of of of. Yeah, you know, everything that it involves. Maintenance, management, whatever. But yeah. as you often say, when you install a, a big data thing, it should be cost of business. It should be either making your money or saving your money somewhere. Yeah. DR should be a part of that too. It should also be making your money or saving money somewhere. And yeah. sometimes it just makes sense to have an, a decision that, okay, if you have outage, DR would cost me X amount. All of the claims I will get will cost me Y amount. Well, as long as Y is smaller than X, uh, just pay the fines and uh, go yeah. down. Yeah. Although yeah, yeah. there's a bit of uh, how do you call that? Um, uh, uh, you're, you're, you have to. You want to be seen as a stable company. So if you go down every yeah, five minutes, it's, it's, even it's, if the, it uh, it's, too much. it's the impact on the brand as well. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's, that is quantifiable. You know, you can exactly. quantify the impact on mm-hmm. your brand, and you can factor that into that calculation, exactly. which is what you know many organisations will will run the numbers and will either work out that. Um, they do need full DR, or they will work out, you know, we can actually make do with some sort of halfway house, and we'll we'll probably kind of talk yeah, about yeah, some yeah, of these yeah. options as we go through. Yeah, you have choices in DR, of course. Is that the, the, the hyper expensive yeah, covers everything, and there's also the yeah. a lot cheaper covers almost everything. Because just with, with like with CPUs, if you want that fast CPU out there, you'll call, you, you pay an extreme premium up, uh, above the one just below it. While if you yeah. go on the low end, just adding a couple of more bucks gives you a lot more uh, performance on the thing. Same thing with these kind of stuff. Same thing with everything in technology. The higher up yeah. to the end you go, that the hockey stick is really going up at the end yeah very much so and but there are methods of of sort of trying to claw back some of that value sometimes and again well probably jumping ahead of us (laughs) a little bit so all right so if if you think you need dr um what what are some of the operations that you might be um might be considering if you're looking at dr i mean if you're doing sort of um, primarily batch workloads. I would suggest that probably doesn't need um, that probably doesn't need DR. Well, it kind of depends on your RTO RPO requirements, and maybe mm-hmm. you've been using those acronyms a couple of times. Maybe just uh, for people that don't know them. Um, RPO, recovery point objective, RTO, recovery time objective. Basically, the first one is how much data can you lose? So how often should you make a backup to make it yeah. a little bit uh, specific? And the RTO, RPO. that's the RPO, yeah. the recovery point. And the recovery time is, okay, when I go down, how long until I have to be up again? Yeah. And depending on those two, you will either need to DR your batch or not, because batch usually happens, I don't know, every couple of hours at the most, usually every day, maybe even slower than that. If you have a batch thing that runs once every quarter, you don't probably don't need DR for that, because the chances that you're down for a quarter 
and you're still in business, <laughs> it's, pretty, yeah. it's pretty, pretty low. On the other hand, if you're, for instance, a uh, stock, uh, you're on a stock exchange somewhere and you have to, uh, by law, have your quarterly reports out at least 20 days after the end of quarter, I have no idea, I'm not in this business, but then you have a 20-day uh, RTO, not a quarter RTO, so it depends there. But generally, batch stuff usually prepares stuff for online stuff, for, for, for streaming stuff, for things mm-hmm. that are inter- interactively used, let's say. And if that batch hasn't run for a couple of days, well, of course, your results may get a little worse if you're doing predictions. Yeah, But it doesn't stop it entirely. So at that point, you really need to have a good incentive to, to pay for a batch DR, also because batch stuff is quite big in data volumes quite often so it yep. does get expensive yeah yeah so i mean I, i'm looking really at the the machine learning because that's what i'm dealing most in my my daily life and quite uh, i mean there's a couple exceptions there but quite often you you'll be training or your data scientists will be working on a spark notebook on a hadoop cluster or databricks or cluster container cluster, whatever a spark thing and that's interactive work where they make your models better add new features things like that if you have outage of that environment okay you're paying these people and they can't work so you have to make sure they can do something else at that point but it doesn't mm. affect your production it doesn't affect your your branding perception it doesn't affect the outside world as much as long as it doesn't take too long to recover of course yeah so that does not need to be the art because it's easy enough to 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 spin up a new environment in a couple of weeks somewhere if you're on premise or in the cloud is even faster of course on the other hand, the front-end facing stuff, the machine learning algorithm that the data scientist has created that is running somewhere in production as a REST API on probably a Kubernetes cluster or something like that, that one you want a DR because that one needs to be, well, high available and disaster recovery proof because if you're a fraud detection algorithm, for example, yeah, I know, I mean, it's not doing fraud detection on, on, on cash withdrawals and stuff, okay, the cash withdrawal will still work. Again, it depends on your cost of business. What is the cost to me as a business if fraudulent stuff happens in that RTO timeframe? Yeah, yeah, indeed. So if you're, I mean, there's kind of, there's two worst cases there, isn't there? One is that, um, you know, rather than fraudulent transactions slipping through, um, actually, if the service is down and it's blocking, meaning that no one can make card transactions, mm-hmm. that would be, for, for 10 minutes globally, that would be catastrophic for some organizations, many organizations in the financial services industry. Um, if they were just, you know, timing out and uh, and so, you know, they would let that, that fraction of fraudulent transactions through, then that, you know, less critical, but probably still not ideal. Yeah, I have no idea how 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 you would have to quantify that in in in, in amounts lost or anything. It's a hard well, decision. Yeah, I mean, my my limited exposure to this kind of space would suggest that they do actually have, you know, they have metrics that they they know roughly the percentage of fraudulent transactions. Yeah, they're always obviously trying to reduce it. So, you know, by by knowing, um, you know, by knowing those kind of numbers you can come up with some sort of number that you can feed into that sort of overall calculation that we were talking about earlier as to when to, when, when to DR or why to DR or not DR. Yeah. And there's also mitigation in the way of, uh, I mean, if a cash withdrawal of 10 euros, okay, whatever, let it go through. Cash withdrawal of 10,000 or a million euros, hey, hang on, we'll stop that one if the fraud detection isn't running. Yeah, when when can I withdraw ten million euros? When when you have ten million euros to withdraw, how's that? Uh, you can withdraw that the day after you've made that. <laughs> well, no, it's a bank, so you probably need to deposit <laughs> it and then wait, you know, several days for the systems to catch hey, up. Hey, things are going to get better. I mean, they're going to do the uh, express uh, cross charging next year or something, so things will get better. But uh, I won't have the million euros to test it. I'm afraid. <laughs> so if you can borrow, it, if you can lend yeah, it, yeah, to yeah, actually, me, if, if, if if someone would like to give me a million <laughs> just euros, a just so I can test, yeah, just so I can withdraw it, just to check and uh, check out how that works. That'd we will give it back. Promised. Yeah. Sure, let's, let's say that. So anyway, um, other things of do you need DR? Um, I've, I've been talking about machine learning algorithm. That's that's purely compute stuff. Uh, do you need DR on pure data, data availability? 
Um, so you you need well again based on whether or not you need you work out whether you need DR at all. If you think you do need DR. I mean, having some sort of disaster recovery for your fundamental data, I think, is is going to be fairly critical in most cases. Um, having some method of restoring your data um, if an environment catastrophically fails um, will be the basis for you then be, being sort of back up and running in some cases. So having... Having your sort of data, whether it's you know replicated, so if we're talking about on-prem, in some cases you will have some organisations that have a um, a very you know relatively generous RTO time. They don't need to be back up and running immediately. So actually, having stuff um, sent to a separate environment, um, you know, a separate SAN environment or a separate you know, cluster that is maybe very heavily storage biased uh, and very low compute is enough for them. They, they know that the, the data is there and they will be able to perform some form of limited failover to that environment if the, if the case requires it. Uh, yeah, but there's two ways of uh, duplicating that data at that point. You can do dual ingest, which means that you'll have a bit more expensive environment, but every piece of, if, if you bit and byte that's in site one will also be in site two at the same time, more or less. Yeah. Or you can do a slow copy with eventual consistency where you ingest in the first uh, cluster and that first cluster then pushes it to the second cluster. Yeah. I mean, there's the, there's multiple things with because if you're doing dual ingest, you will also need um, you know some form of reconciliation to make sure that things really are both the same in both environments mm-hmm. as well. Um, there's also uh, a case for if you're doing that sort of ingest single site replicate from site A to site B. Um, one of the methods used by um, one of the sort of Hortonworks customers, you know, Utilities customers in, in Europe, is they, they do um, sort of have two two duplicate environments, but they, they sweat the assets of their DR environment as data science and data exploration. But if you do that, you also need to understand the prioritization of your workloads more accurately. And what I mean by that is, let's say you've got three different priority categories – Category category A is kind of business critical. Cat, category B is important but not critical to business, and category C is everything else. So you've got two environments. Maybe one is running A and B, and the second is running C. Well, if your DR enacts, you know, A and B workloads will fail over to the second environment, but you now don't have the additional spare capacity to run workloads in category C. So you need to if you're going to you know follow this kind of pattern which is fairly popular mm-hmm. in the on-prem dr world um then you it's absolutely fine it's one of the things that lots of organizations do but you do need to make sure you understand the the prioritization of workloads so and the, the business is aware that when you enact dr especially if it's something that you test on a regular basis that not everything that runs you know, in the normal sense, will continue running in the DR sense. Yeah, and it can also have effect on your RTO because if something is that C stuff needs to be shut down before the AB stuff can land there, and yep. you probably need to shut that down in somewhat of a controlled fashion because yep. it's still production stuff you're running there. So just make sure that you take into account the fact that you'll need an hour, half an hour before you can actually start moving stuff from AB onto that uh, other location. Yeah. Um, another thing when you were talking, uh, I was thinking about this, if you do dual ingest, it also makes your security harder because at that point you yep. have two official entry points which need to have all the security in place. And typically you will not be in the same environment. There'll be different data centers, different providers there. So you'll have to extra management costs. While if you do a ingest once and then push through, the push through happens in your own environment. So your security will be less of a added uh, effort there yeah but you've still got i mean dr typically will mean that you have you know multiple instances of something in some way shape or form so one of the one of the things that organizations often do is rather than if you've got a single environment 
it's fine to go in, log in, change some parameters through some sort of web UI, click OK, and it's all fine. If you've got multiple environments, especially if it's multiple environments and you're doing dual ingest, then in many cases, any changes to an environment, you'll want to make those through API calls or something similar or some sort of change control, yeah. you know, proliferation, <laughs> just so that you can make sure you're making consistent changes to both environments. Yeah, I would even go further than that. I mean, if if you if you're thinking about doing anything with DR and you're not doing uh, version control and configuration mm. management using mm. something like GitHub and Chef or Ansible or something like that, uh, think again because you really need to automate stuff if you want to make sure that this stuff is resilient. Yeah, uh, I I would go one step further than the old one step even further, further, which is <laughs> which is even further one step beyond even further is I think Straight if you're doing big data properly, um, then everything needs to be practically everything needs to be under under some form of configuration yeah. management. I mean, if you're looking at you know, and Bari takes care of configuration management for by and large the quote-unquote Hadoop layer. Mm -hmm. But there's a whole load of stuff beneath that in more of the OS level that also needs to be dealt with under configuration management correctly. So that's things like um, you know, network configuration, um, tuning parameters for OS, all that kind of stuff, which sadly I still see people spinning up environments today that are done with either hand-cranked scripting mm -hmm. or some sort of runbook that people go through and just please don't. Please please implement proper configuration management. I'm in a slightly better world living in the cloud because people in the cloud kind of understand that you need to be able to tear down and pull up your environment on a moment's notice, Mostly. let's say. So they have a bit better instincts this way, but uh, yeah, it's definitely not, uh, not uh, ideal yet. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we're talking here about the real production side of it and also your dev test, which is part of your production side. But obviously, you'll have a data scientist uh, doing a little test of, of something. So you don't need to do, uh, if you want to send up a set of a sandbox just to play around with a new version of Spark to just see if, if your thing compiles and if it doesn't, you forget about it. Uh, you don't have to do all that in the, the, the although if, if you do that in the proper way, it's a good, it's a good exercise, it's a good practice. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, so there's there's a number of th approaches that usually when you start talking to people about DR, you know, one of them is, oh, but I've already got HDFS replication or I've already got, you know, high availability name loads or whatever it might be. The other, the other question that usually pops up is, oh, it's fine. I'll just run my single kind of cluster across my two data centers. They've got really low latency and very high bandwidth. Um yeah, please don't do that. <laughs> um, well, if, a, you, if, if you want to test your DR in action all day long, it's a great way to go. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, th there are a number of things that people usually try or usually try and convince themselves that that gives them DR. So one mm -hmm. of them is, um, for example, abusing the uh, HGFS's native rack awareness to actually just... There's only two racks. There's data center A rack and there's data center B rack. <laughs> um, and I, I still see this happening today, unfortunately. Um, and it, it, it really doesn't work. It, the reason it doesn't work is because you've got, first of all, it compromises the replication of data within your single, your individual data centers for first point. Uh, because th you can't have multiple tiers of rack awareness. It's just either it's rack awareness and you have data replicated across racks, or it's not. Um, so that's yeah, one of the things. You can couple the rack awareness with the multi-tiering that's inside HDFS and have all your SSDs on one end and all your hard disks on the other end, right? <laughs> oh, God. So... Um, <laughs> I was joking, by the way, people. I was joking. Yeah, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> the other thing is that regardless of what, when people are talking about the bandwidth availability and the latency and, oh, we've got all this dark fiber and all this kind of wonderful stuff, what they're usually talking about is the situation in ideal um, circumstances when everything's switched off and, and everything's available. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, we've got all of this bandwidth. Great. Um, what most people don't seem to realize is that 
the the nodes on the cluster talk to themselves way more than most people kind of think on a day-to-day basis. Um, if you have, you know, groups of nodes that, you know, some of which can talk to each other very quickly because they're within a single data center, and some of which they take a lot longer to respond to, relatively speaking, because they're in a separate data center, you will start to get kind of weird conditions happening, weird, whether it's race conditions or just kind of weird things, jobs timing out due to sort of um, that sort of communication latency or lag. Um, I've seen it before. I'm sure I will see it again. Um, People just can't help themselves to, to stop doing this, it would seem. Yeah, and just maybe to put some practical uh, vision on it, uh, when I used to work at, as a system administrator, I had a uh, Hadoop cluster under my management. This is uh, 2.1 era, I think. Mm-hmm. And we had a cluster running about a couple hundred nodes, and we needed to add more nodes. It didn't have, didn't have enough room in the racks anymore, no more racks available in that room. So in the same data center, we just went to another room on a different floor and mm-hmm. added nodes there. Just by having not just a top of rack switches with the group switch on top, but an extra job hop to the other top of rack switch, that was enough to cause nodes to fail very inconsistently, very unpredictably, mm-hmm. because sometimes, I mean, in a normal running, it just ran fine. I want to exchange a disk. I switch off one node, re-replication starts happening, broadcasts start happening, things fall over, thing, and disaster. And yeah, yeah, yeah. that we're not even talking different countries or continents, but just having different rooms in the same data center. Every network switch, every network hub, every firewall gives you extra latency, and you very quickly go into the realm where it causes problems. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And yeah, this and is valid for for storage just on ACFS, but also for your compute jobs that are somewhat talking to each other. I mean, anything approaching uh, HPC, and Hadoop is a form of cheap HPC, you mm-hmm. will have things timing out, things starting again, things going wrong. Yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, when we're talking about disaster recovery, some, some, in some cases people are thinking that the two environments need to be um, completely identical. And... In some cases, those environments will be completely identical. In fact, that's I would probably choice, make right? the argument that it that's the easiest way to yep. do it is to keep both environments identical. But it's not the only way to do it. So you could decide that, you know, take those those category A, B, and C again. Like A is business critical, B is not business critical but necessary, and C is everything else. You could decide to size your DR environment so only category A data gets replicated to it and only it only has enough compute capacity to run those category A workloads. I mean, saves you a boatload of cash potentially, um, but obviously in the event of a disaster happening, you're severely compromised with the remaining uh, workloads that fall outside that category A. Um Another option is, especially in the on-prem world, is you can look at um, having different sized um, storage-wise nodes. So you can have um, you know nodes that are very you know balanced on your primary environment, and nodes that are very storage-heavy on your um, secondary environment. So if you're doing that, you can look at. Uh, again, you can only run. You only probably have the compute power to run category A, uh, but you actually have the storage capacities that you can replicate. You know all the data, including that which was required for category B and category C sort of workloads. So it, there's, and that's just very very simple examples. There are all sorts of other nuances as as to how you can decide to blend you know, between not having DR at all mm-hmm. and having full-blown bells and whistles, dual ingest, all the magic. Yeah, 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 and maybe also a little cautionary tale here. If you're talking to vendors that are trying to sell you a disaster recovery thing, they will try to minimize the cost impact by telling you, yeah, but your secondary side doesn't have to be passive, doesn't have to be standby. You can use it. 
<laughs> and don't yep. forget that that's that category C usage that will go away yeah, exactly. or will need to go away if you do the failover thing. That's what they usually don't talk about. And yeah. uh, I always wonder how much category C stuff you really have because there will always be a, a little bit, definitely. But most of your infrastructure should be making you money at any given time. And yeah, I mean, the as I as I say, there's a there's a utilities company in Europe that I'm reasonably familiar with who have for the last probably four years been operating um, sort of DR with multiple clusters, mm-hmm. and they use their um, they sort of have it's single site ingest and replication, and their DR environment is of identical. Yep. compute and storage configuration but they do use that as i said earlier i think for data rep uh, for sorry data science mm-hmm. and kind of um prototyping and development and analytics kind of purposes um so they they do get the benefit out of it for that but exactly as you say in the event of dr being acted enacted you know production workloads will fail over to that and all of the sort of data science exploration model training, all that sort of stuff will get squeezed down into, you know, a tiny, tiny level of availability of a, a capacity scheduler queue or whatever it might be. Um, and so almost none of that category C stuff, as we were talking about it earlier, would actually run in a DR scenario. So yeah, you need to be, need to be honest about yeah. what you're actually going to have the capability to do given a given DR being enacted. And most organizations will have some sort of formal policy. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that just because that's your organization's policy as it exists now, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is the policy that will need to be in place with a big data environment. Because we said at the start, kind of, it is a little, it can be at least a little bit different to traditional enterprise approach just because of the sheer scale of things. So don't, necessarily automatically believe that well we need to do all all of everything all the bells and whistles and it's going to cost us a bajillion krona and we will therefore never be able to sort of we'll never be able to do it because we'll the, the organization will never pay for that well it's not necessarily the case you need to understand the the impact and understand the cost of implementing dr to the level that it makes sense given your company's investment in it yeah, definitely. Uh, a couple of things that I thought about while you were, while you were talking. I mean, I do multitask. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been talking about DR on storage and compute. Uh, if you're doing anything with real-time streaming, don't underestimate your network usage. Yeah. Because yeah. that's something that's easily a cost reduction in, in a second site that isn't identical. Well, we don't need all those load balancers, right? It's not going to be used that often anyway. Um, at a certain point, definitely with streaming ingests, it, it'll just fall over. Just make sure that yeah. uh, you do your tests there as well and that that is also dimensioned at least large enough to be able to do the production you want to produce. I mean, if you're taking uh, doing ticket sales online, if that load balancer doesn't cope, your whole site will go down. It's not that you will yeah. lose 10%, you will lose everything. So make sure you also your networking is also intact. Same with memory. Memory is also one that often gets for, forgotten, although less often than networking, because quite often people that do the networking are not the people doing the, the, the disks and the, the CPUs and the yeah, RAM for some yeah. reason. <laughs> networking is still its own alchemy. <laughs> yep, quite right too. And another thing I was thinking about is we've been talking about having a secondary site. Now, if you're, lo- if you're big enough, you can have more than one site. I mean, if you're yeah, big enough, if you're an international so. company worldwide and you have a follow the sun uh, kind of uh, support organization, that also probably means you have data center locality across the world as well. So when one site fails, you can set something up that distributes that load across multiple sites. It does make things harder, harder to, to monitor, harder to see if it actually is working, if it's going to end up in a stable situation again. It's a lot harder to test it out because, well, you're affecting a lot more than just one data center at that point. But it is definitely an option. And for some companies, it's a very good option. But you need to have a certain yeah. size there, a certain footprint. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that you mentioned, uh, a good point about testing, and in, in the in the same way that 
a backup process is not complete until you've tested the restoring <laughs> of the data. A DR process is not complete until you've tested both the failover and, and the failback. Yes. Um, and, you know, the, uh, it sounds like common sense, uh, but but the number of people that, you know, yeah, we have DR. When did you test it? Well, never. Yeah, mm. you don't have DR. Not yeah. yet. I mean, people shouldn't be buying backup and backup solutions. They should buy restore solutions. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. So it's like every wall is a whiteboard, right? You can write on all of them. It's taking it off again. <laughs> it upsets the, the cleaners something <laughs> chronic, though, let me tell you. <laughs> I haven't done that in a while, but, you know, it does occasionally happen. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 there's a number of things, I think, that, that are fairly consistent in, you know, basic principles of DR, both on-prem and cloud. But I think, Jon, you would probably you would probably say that there are there are some things that are fundamentally different in cloud for DR. Um, yes, now I would actually say it's easier in the cloud because cloud is harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you move something to the cloud, you always have to m- keep in mind that those past SaaS services or any REST API you're building yourself is disconnected for some reason. There is You have less control because you're in a rented environment, you're, you're in a cloud environment, I'm talking public cloud. If you have your own VMware environment, you have more control. But if you go into public cloud, you do lose a certain grasp on the whole thing. You're de- it, there's a dependency in there. So whenever people move from on-prem to the cloud, we always uh, advise them to build loosely coupled systems with uh, storage in between, have events come in, store it on uh, cheap uh, storage, uh, and at the same time pipe it through to the next step. So if something crashes, something falls out, you have a buffer built in, and when that thing comes back, you can just pick up where it left off. Now that in itself is not DR, that's just a high availability and just making plain things, plainly making it work. But because of this loosely coupled system and also the fact you have a lot of smaller components working together, it becomes both easier and harder to do a disaster recovery thing because you can really granularly pick out the things that are really mission critical that need to be idempotent, running all the time, be disaster recoverable, a bit of short RTO. And mm-hmm. leave the stuff that's the batch, that's just uh, the storage layers that don't need to be there for the DR recovery process to run on the other side, not to have those rec- uh, disaster recovered, not to have those available on both sides. So it does work very well. And the best customers, or the customers that do this best, are people that go completely in for code. We've talked about using um, yeah. version control and configuration management. The, the the dream there is to have instruction as code, where you just push one button and it builds up all the VMs, all the Kubernetes clusters, all the Hadoop clusters you need automatically within a short amount of time. If you mm-hmm. can do that, your disaster recovery is easy because that just means you need to have an account somewhere else in another data center uh, attached to that cloud. You press that button there and you have your infrastructure there. The one thing that is missing then, of course, is your storage. Uh, not the storage capacity, but your data. Pressing a button will not automatically copy an exabyte of data across the ocean. No. and it, Well, I mean, it may initiate the copy, but <laughs> by, that, by the time an exabyte of data is copied across, yeah, you're probably out of business. You're talking years. <laughs> <laughs> So the thing we talked about, about uh, dual ingest or having a a push through is something you have to take into account. Now, fortunately, most of the public clouds out there have situations where you can just on the storage layer say, this needs to be G-redundant. So it automatically already Mm -hmm. makes that copy, usually on very cheap hardware. So it's easier to do this. And again, in a cloud, well, we're on premise where we're talking about having not homogenous uh, systems, but having a, a different kind of footprint on the, the on the, the target side for the disaster recovery because you don't need it all the time. You need a lot of storage, yeah. but less compute. In a cloud environment, that's a lot easier, of course, because it's all a funeral anywhere. Your storage, yeah, again, your storage we talked and about that. are separated. But your compute can go from nothing to a lot at the flick of a button, to be honest. Yeah. Do make sure, because I know all cl- public clouds out there have quotas in place to avoid you paying too much because somebody pushed the wrong button. Do make sure that your other side has quotas to be able to spin up what you need to have your AB loads running there. Because that's mm-hmm. one thing I've actually, uh, it's a yeah, real life story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because that's the things you don't want to discover at the time when you're doing disaster recovery that you're not allowed to spin up more than 50 VMs on that side. <laughs> <laughs> Things will go <Yeah>. bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that won't go well. 
Um, also, something that's actually avail- uh, applicable for both uh, on-premise and cloud, but again, you have more flexibility in the cloud, I think, is when you're looking at the duplication of your data, do you need all data duplicated? As I think I just said, you need to make sure the data that your production needs to run is available on both sides, because if, if not, yep. your computer can't do anything. But the raw ingest data, quite often in a data lake, you have raw ingest data, you have a prepare layer, you have a anonymized layer, and then you have consumption layers. Now, that consumption exactly. layer, that's the production side. Yes, you need to have those on both sides. The yep. raw data, yep. on the other hand, don't forget disaster recovery does not automatically include data loss. If you want to f- uh, counter data loss, that's what backups are for. That's what archives are for. Yep. Disaster recovery does not imply that. So it just means you can't get to that data for a while until it's back up again. So you don't probably don't have to copy all your raw data as well. And that can, makes a huge difference because the refined products, your consumption layer, is most often, not always, there are exceptions, but most often uh, a magnitude smaller than what you're actually ingesting yeah. to build that uh, consumption layer. Exactly right. Exactly right. So by by being selective about the data that you choose to replicate across to your you know, B site or DR site or whatever you want to call it, um, you can at least you know, minimize the cost of, of DR in some cases. But again, it takes... It takes an organization that actually understands both the different layers that you talked about, all mm-hmm. the way from raw through to consumption layer, but it also takes sort of some understanding of you know the workloads that are consuming that data as well. And how much effort it takes to rebuild those consumed layers or to rebuild yeah. the intermediate thing, stuff. It's, uh, you have to look data set by data set at that point. And, and the, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and the... If it really is a disaster, a true disaster, and something happens that you do actually lose that raw storage, um, are there any regulatory sort of penalties Mm -hmm. that mean that actually you need to keep that raw data for a certain period of time? In which case, you know, maybe replicating the raw data and the consumption data, so think of either end of that pipeline, maybe that's a requirement. So it might not just always be about the consumption layer. You may need to think about yep. raw or some sort of compressed archived version of raw. Yeah, yeah true. Totally true. Um, last thing I want to say here personally is that like when I was talking about the machine learning things where you have your mm-hmm. batch stuff with the, the, the Spark notebooks, you don't want a DR perhaps, but the production version of that is probably a, a kind of Docker container cluster that has the REST APIs pointing to your models. On the yeah. data side, you can have the same kind of paradigm where the refined data quite often isn't a bunch of JSON files, but is a SQL environment, is a NoSQL database, is a, an HBase, is something that's already doing its own kind of disaster recovery, um, high availability backup functionality in there. So you can leverage that stuff. You don't have to invent a lot of that stuff from scratch again. In fact, I mean, there are there are underlying technologies for a lot of this stuff that you can use to create a um, a DR solution, if you like. But it's not, you know, let, let's be honest here, it's not just deploy your Hadoop environment, click a button that says make me DR aware, and away <laughs> you go. It would be nice if that was the case, and I'm sure that's coming in a future version of Ambari, but it's... <laughs> it, it's um, it's it's just not that simple today. So there's there are a lot of bells and whistles. One of the things we often mention here is find a good partner that you can work with that understands your needs, your requirements, um, you know, your budget. Let's face it, and uh, and you know what it is that you actually need to achieve um, for your DR scenario. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at the next point ahead of my preparation here. I think we've talked a lot about what the financial implications are of doing disaster recovery. I mean, this mm. is never going to be cheap. It will always no. have a significant budget dependent uh, relative to whatever your deployment is. Of course, a cheap environment will have less of a cost to the DR uh, compared to a very expensive environment. Yeah. But um, it's still, it's, it's added cost and it doesn't seem to have any benefit in everyday life. It just costs you money when you don't have it and you need it. Yeah, I mean, as I say, there are there are things that you can use to reduce mm-hmm. or at least somewhat mitigate that 
just pure sunk cost. But it, you know, it, it's it can be a a hard sell um, until yeah you have that scenario enacted where you need DR and you don't have it. I mean the the cost then is always much higher in order to. To, to recover from those kind of situations. So, yeah, it's as, always it's always going to be a balance. And as I said, it's usually once it happens that people recognize, okay, this is something we need to do because we can't have this happening again. Yeah, very much so. 2020 hindsight. It's a wonderful thing. Okay, I think we've kind of reached the end of our discussion here. I think so. I think we've covered everything that Certainly, that I wanted to run yeah, through. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. There are there are plenty of you know, technology solutions out there. Um, Jon, when doing uh, research for this, found a, a great um, slide share deck, which I think we should link in the show notes. Yeah, we'll do. Um, from a guy named Carlos, and I will not even attempt to pronounce it's his weird surname. Though. <laughs> maybe um from big data spain in 2017 and it's uh he's from datatons maybe oh that's a logo on um, the slide i'm assuming so yeah yeah so it's um it's a great it's actually a really great intro to uh big data dr um and i think it, it covers a lot of the points or high level a lot of the points that we've talked about um but it, it's it's just a nice it's a nice way to package up this kind of content um, for a little bit easier consumption maybe for others that you want to introduce to this topic. Yeah, and I, actually, I think I found our image for uh, the episode. If you look on slide seven, the bottom right one. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that works. That works. So yeah, uh, links in the show notes as usual, of course. Um, yeah, so it's it's an it's a topic that often comes up. It's something that um, I think there's a lot of fud around. Um, hopefully, we've made things a little bit clearer. Um, if there's something else you'd like to know, well, you know how to get in touch with us. If we made stuff harder for you to understand, then do let us know. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> And if you want to have that uh, cluster spread HCFS file system, I know a guy. Yeah, his name's Jan. <laughs> you can reach him at Jan at, at roaringelephant.org. <laughs> okay, since Dave is starting to go ad hominem here, it's all the time we have for today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of backup disaster recovered bite-sized big data. We will be back next week with a new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org or yon at roaringelephant.org for that split HCF testing. Send us any thoughts, comments, criticisms and other feedback. Until next time, my name is Jon. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. See you then.